Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. In Connecticut, there's a shortage of rental housing available to lower-income households. According to estimates from the National Low-Income Housing Coalition, the state would need to build more than 85,000 units of housing to meet the needs of its lowest-income renters. This hour, we're looking at Connecticut cities and how they're addressing their housing and infrastructure needs. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. A new federal funding bill was passed in December, and now Connecticut is set to receive more than $236 million. A percentage of those funds have been earmarked for economic development. Coming up, we'll hear about programs in New Haven and Hartford. But first, Lisa Hagan. She's federal policy reporter for the Connecticut Mirror and Connecticut Public. She's here to talk about that spending bill. Lisa, welcome back to Disrupted. Hey, great to be back. I want to talk about this massive new appropriations bill that was signed by President Biden back in December, $1.7 trillion in government spending to fund the federal government, but also has implications for what's happening here in Connecticut. Walk us through sort of a, a big overview and takeaway of that new bill. It's a massive bill. It has implications both directly and indirectly for Connecticut. And so just largely, it funded the government, which is huge. There will no no chance of a government uh, shut down for quite some time. And so in that, it funds federal agencies, but it also did a few other things that kind of don't necessarily relate to uh, the government funding itself. It had reforms for the Electoral Count Act, which is an attempt to basically prevent another attack at the Capitol, like we saw on January 6th. So when we see after the 2024 presidential election, basically streamlining that process, clarifying it so that Congress can certify the presidential election. Interestingly, with that, uh, Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut was pretty integral in that. He helped craft that bill with a bipartisan coalition. So that's a little bit of a Connecticut connection there. And beyond that, it saw you know a, a ton of defense spending, which Connecticut members also played a hand in got a lot of funding, uh, procurement of military aircraft and and just other kinds of uh, military tools and whatnot for Electric Bow and Pratt and & Whitney and uh, Sikorsky. And then beyond that, you know, also a lot of mental health funding, um, just, just a lot of stuff that Connecticut members were involved in. But I think most importantly with this is that Connecticut lawmakers brought home a lot of what we used to call earmarks, and that's that congressionally directed spending. It is projects that members sought out directly for their towns and their communities. And so I think that is the way that Connecticut will see a lot of these this funding from the federal government impacting their communities in the near term. Let's talk about that impact and that connection for Connecticut. One of the things that we see in that bill or that package is about $236 million in funding for Connecticut, for priority areas in Connecticut. What are some of those key areas uh, and what will it mean in terms of being able to have this money targeted toward Connecticut need and Connecticut opportunity? 
Exactly as you said, it's about $236 million. It's a lot of money. It's going towards about 170 projects in total. And that's spread throughout about 70 different towns and cities in Connecticut. And so not too surprisingly, the biggest recipients are these really major cities and probably the towns surrounding them. So it's places like Hartford, as well as East Hartford and Bridgeport and New Haven, uh, Waterbury, a lot of these big towns and cities in Connecticut. And so uh, it, it spans a bunch of different categories. When I took a look at all of them, it seems like they were mostly going towards infrastructure. And sometimes that kind of intersects with maybe an environmental project they're working on, but definitely towards infrastructure. And uh, that's kind of coupled with the fact that Connecticut and states all across the country were getting a ton of money from that bipartisan infrastructure bill, which passed now in 2021. So it's been some time now. And so it that kind of builds on a lot of that infrastructure money they've gotten. But we're also seeing it in the realms of health and education and law enforcement and energy and environment. And just, it really spans, you know, runs the gamut of a bunch of different things and, you know, towns and cities will see it physically, but also in programming and services as well. You mentioned that some of the state's largest cities and localities will be receiving the bulk of this funding, places like Hartford, New Haven, and Bridgeport, which, you know, would come to mind as places that would have that need and also be attractive for those kinds of projects. Those are also cities that are often lobbying the state for more support and more funding to address some of its core services that it delivers, but also the complex needs of its residents. Here's a basic question. When should we expect to see those funds coming into those localities? And, you know, when could it actually hit the ground in a shovel-ready way to actually have an impact in those areas? I don't know exactly when money will come in for all these projects. It's a, it's a ton of them, but we're seeing right now a lot of members just kind of tout the fact that they got all these funds. So uh, they're they're really going into the communities now and showing what they brought back home. And so I imagine a lot of these cities and towns will start seeing this very soon. Are there particular projects that stood out to you when you look through the list of projects that are, you know, target, we don't say earmarked anymore, right, but that are targeted for Connecticut? Are there particular urban renewal projects that stand out? A lot of a lot of the workforce and educational programming that I saw in a lot of these cities, including the three that we're talking about, is for financial literacy, workplace development, and a lot of them are targeted uh, and with an eye on equity. And so we're seeing it go towards low-income families. I know in, in Hartford, the Hispanic Federation will have a financial literacy component in programming, just trying to get people uh, familiar with, with just basic financial life skills. Uh, we're seeing in, I think in one of the libraries, this might be for Hartford, uh, programming for immigrants and English, uh, you know, English as a first language and for refugees, just being able to get access to some of these programs. And then in Bridgeport, there's also going to be renovations to housing that addresses accessibility for veterans who might have lower lower mobility and accessibility. So it uh, definitely seems like there's, in some of these projects, and many of these projects, an eye towards making more equitable towns and cities and for, for people to live in. If I'm someone who's opposed to massive government spending and has concern that this 
massive project has gone through in addressing all these areas. The question that I would ask then is with all of this new funding coming into the state, with it targeting in particular areas that have high need, but also high possibility and opportunity, the next question would be, is this enough, right? That if you have all of this federal money coming into these projects, why should we be asking more at the state level? Or why should we be asking more at the local level? Do you think that this funding is sufficient to have the kind of impact that those legislators have proposed? Take the first part. I think there's still definitely concerns around earmarks, especially because they changed the terminology for it. And so there is supposed to be an audit that is done on all of the spending that all the funding that every single member has requested. And so that should hopefully address people's concerns that if there was a project that funding was given to that, hopefully it is going to a legitimate cause and that it will be spent wisely. It is only allowed now for government entities and for not for profits. And so uh, it's, definitely limitations on who can receive this funding. And in terms on it being enough, I mean, I, I'm sure members never feel like and communities never feel like they're they're getting enough. I will say about this process, the difference, I mean, we see towns and cities in Connecticut getting federal funding all the time. The difference being that this doesn't have to go through a grant process. This is money that they've, I guess, for lack of a better word, you could say lobby lawmakers that this is important and that sh- they should request this funding from Congress. I imagine this is just scratching the surface for a lot of this, for a lot of communities. And honestly, it is unclear the fate of earmarks going forward, especially with Republicans having the House. This could maybe potentially be only a Senate side thing. So this might be something that we don't actually see this year in terms of communities getting to vouch for projects in their community that they find important. What would you say is one thing that we should be paying attention to as these funds come in, as you know, the federal government continues to debate about what support should look like? What are you paying attention to moving forward? I'm definitely paying attention to how this money is going into the communities. And again, a lot of this, a lot of this funding, I think, is coupled with a lot of the funding that came from larger bills. So again, this is these are infrastructure funds coming on top of all the infrastructure money that's been coming into the communities over the past two years and is is still going to take some time to roll out. A lot of the bills that you see go through Congress, they take an an implementation of multiple years. We saw that with the big Inflation Reduction Act in terms of the climate funds and the health funding. And so I feel like some of this funding is, I don't want to say it's a band-aid, but it, it gets a lot of communities and services through a certain period of time as they're waiting to be able to get a lot of this larger funding from these bigger bills. And so I'm just definitely keeping track of the money and, and seeing and seeing what Connecticut is getting and benefiting from. We'll definitely have to have you back to talk more about that in the future as we see what comes in and how it's used. Lisa Hagan is federal policy reporter for Connecticut Mirror and Connecticut Public. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks so much. Coming up, We'll hear how New Haven is using its revitalization funds to avoid the mistakes of the past. And later, Hartford Mayor Luke Bronin will discuss the challenges and achievements in reviving Hartford's neighborhoods. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. 
Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Now that we've heard an overview of some of the recent federal funds that will impact Connecticut cities, let's take a look at two cities in detail. Dr. Karen Bois walton is president and CEO of Elm City Communities. It's the public housing agency that serves the city of New Haven. They serve more than 6,000 families across the city. She's also president of the Glendower Group, and she joins now to talk about how these two organizations are developing affordable housing options in New Haven. Karen, welcome to Disrupted. Oh, great to be with you. Let's start at the most basic question, because we are talking about these opportunities for development and redevelopment in some of the state's biggest urban areas. So the most basic question is to tell us, what is Elm City Communities and the Glendower Group, and and how are these two entities connected to address this idea of redevelopment and revitalization? Elm City Communities is actually our umbrella organization for three entities. One is the traditional housing authority. So we are the Housing Authority of New Haven, which has been around since uh, in 80 years, since 1938. Uh, And we have two affiliated nonprofits. The Glendower Group is our development nonprofit. And we also have a group called 360 Management, which is our property management um, arm. So one of the things that I think is, is fascinating in this space, particularly for the work that you do, Elm City Communities as a part of the Housing Authority is actually a federal entity, even though it's working in these local and regional areas. And that understanding of what does it mean to have a federal mandate or federal provision working in local communities sometimes is confusing to people in terms of not just how the funding is done, but also what the opportunities are to work in these areas. How does having that federal designation coming from the Federal Housing Act, how does that shape the work of this umbrella organization? You're absolutely right. Our funding uh, does come through uh, congressional appropriations uh, through the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development. Uh, We are one of about 3,000 housing authorities across the country. And housing authorities really came about in the early uh, or the late 1930s as a response to slum conditions in urban centers. And if you think about that time in our history and we're coming out of depression era and you had um, great urbanization and lots of factory jobs and things that drew people to cities. And so you had this explosion of population growth and housing conditions that people found themselves living in when they came up north for these jobs or came to to places like New Haven actually were not standard housing uh, in many many, um, situations. And so the federal government's response was, 
to create this program of massive building of housing. And so public housing, as people think of it, or is it's colloquially called off in the projects, came about out of that federal investment in being a housing developer. The problem is that the federal government pretty quickly pivoted out of wanting to be in that business. And so if you think about anything, uh, you know, if, if you, we've got homeowners listening and you think about building or buying a home and having it, and then for decades and decades and decades, not having enough money to operate it, to make the basic repairs and upkeep, to do the kinds of longer term um, investments that you need to make in your home, over time, the quality of that housing um, diminishes. And what you see in an entity like Elm City Communities is that we have figured out how to be, yes, federally funded and part of that sort of quasi-governmental bureaucracy, but how to get really entrepreneurial about it, how to put a more sustainable future in place for us by getting into lines of business like the Glendower Group doing development and our property management arm. And so we have this opportunity to bring federal dollars into our communities for the purpose of ensuring that people have um, opportunities to live in housing that they can afford, but that that housing be something of choice and quality. And so you see federal dollars at work in our New Haven community um, in over 25 um, housing developments that we operate, in thousands of families that we subsidize through our Housing Choice Voucher Program. And so we're serving about 6,000 families right now, and that's an important number, but it also pales in, in uh, comparison to the need out there. I like that framing of housing of choice because it also affirms the humanity and the dignity of people to be able to have ample, credible choices, quality choices about where they want to live, where they want to raise their families. But Karen, you and I both know in an urban place like New Haven, access to land, to property, to being able to really commit to that development and redevelopment in affordable housing can be a challenge. Given the mandate of the Glendower Group and the ways that it's involved in urban revitalization in the New Haven area, what would you say are some of the biggest challenges that you face in carrying out that work so that you can create these choices for families and really affirm the beauty of family and community in these urban spaces? Well, we began our redevelopment really on the existing footprint of properties that we already had. So we had this infrastructure that was dates back to the 40s and had aged um, and, and been home to thousands of families and had reached the end of its useful life. And so our first focus was looking at those properties and being in conversation with families about what works in their community, what doesn't, what they dream for in their community, what kinds of housing um, they desire, what they'd like their housing community to look like. And we started um, building off that, bringing in the best ideas from from urban planners and urban design and architects and engineers and creating new communities right on that existing footprint. And that is also part of our work of how we are undoing some of the damage that was done by past governmental policy that really redlined um, uh, certain neighborhoods and kept investment out of out of certain communities. And so our pouring that investment back in and creating home for the families that already live there to, it was, was the first step. But there is a big challenge because we have such a great need. I mentioned the 6,000 families we serve. I haven't yet mentioned the 50,000 families that are on our wait list right now um, today. And so there is a need to be doing more than certainly just redeveloping on our existing footprint. 
And so we at Glendower are constantly looking for new opportunities to develop other um, properties within the city of New Haven. And there, as you've mentioned, uh, are not a lot of uh, developable properties, but we are um, in pursuit of, of any opportunity that we can within the city. But the other challenge is that all access to housing that's affordable should not exist only in cities. And so another big challenge that um, that we face is that we need to be able to have opportunities to look even beyond the 18 square miles of New Haven so that families who are currently on our wait list who may want to live in cities can. But those families on our wait list that also might want to have a choice in another community should also have that opportunity. So that's a that's a challenge for us right now is to think about how we as a state structure our investment strategy so that we're investing in our cities and also creating pathways into any community that a family might uh, desire to live. One of the things that always comes up when we talk about development and redevelopment, particularly in urban areas, increasingly in suburban and rural areas as well, is this fear that by bringing in new investment, new resources to areas and communities, that it may displace certain families and communities that are already there. And anytime you mention redevelopment, instantly people go to gentrification. And what will this mean for the people who have been here and may not be able to afford the rising costs, taxes, everything else that comes along with redevelopment? Given your mission, given your commitment to creating uh, opportunities and choice, how do you avoid that challenge of gentrification and moving forward saying people deserve options, but still being leery of what this may mean for folks already there. It's one of the things that I believe I'm proudest of the work that we've done is that these amazing communities that we're building that that offer really quality housing, energy efficient housing, bikeable, walkable, um, green space, uh, community space where folks can gather, they're being built for the families that were already there and for other families like them in similar income income brackets. So while we are redeveloping and, and creating something that people drive by and might think is market rate, the vast majority of the families that are living there are living there in something that is affordable to them and, and, um, and our families that are income qualified for us. That's a huge part of our mission. And it's, it's a part of working through a real equity frame that says, um, that we need to center the the people in the system that have been least well served by the system. And that's so much as the history of U.S. housing policy. Unfortunately, that is not um, always what you see in urban redevelopment, and it's certainly not been the history of urban redevelopment. And so the, the reason we focus so much on making sure that we're doing it in this way is because we're trying to undo the harms and the, the ills and the mistakes of the past. I think as we think about other developers that are doing work in urban centers, one of the best partner, whether you're in New Haven or in any municipality that has a housing authority, is to engage the housing authority. Because just as you started with talking about the federal resource, we are the purveyor of that federal resource. We are the ones who have access to the subsidy dollars that the federal government has said are are there to make housing affordable. And so a developer that comes in and and tries to develop in a community without considering the needs of the low and moderate income families that are there will quite often say, oh, it's too expensive to build. We can't build um, something and, and then rent it at an affordable price because they've never tried to engage those who hold the, the, that, that rich subsidy that can help make that possible. 
So I think our challenge in in New Haven and in, in places across our state is to make sure that the development that's happening is first informed by what that community says they want and need, and that we're not imposing something on. And that we're then um, in taking that plan into action, that we are pursuing the kinds of funding that the state or the federal government can provide to ensure that we have created something that is truly affordable. We need to um, certainly be um, building more housing uh, across a, a number of price points in our communities. But we are going to sit uh, 20, 30 years down the road and look back and say, what were they doing if we continue down a path where we allow development to happen in ways that push out lower income and moderate income families? And it is not going to be a city that is going to uh, represent the kind of vibrancy and vitality that exists in places where you get people of all different backgrounds, all different income, living together, playing together, working together in a community. Karen, the way that you've laid out creating access to affordable housing is an issue about equity and access, but in some ways it's also about restorative justice, about the decades of indifference to the need, to the people who are expressing that need, and now looking at urban areas where there's this sort of resurgence in interest in living in urban areas particularly coming out of COVID, where people were moving from New York into Connecticut's urban areas, that displacement, but also that level of, you know, people saying, what about us? To local leaders, to officials who were trying to attract these development projects and never really considering the people who were already here and their complex needs. What's your message then to local government, local officials who, although your housing authority is a federal entity, work so closely on the ground every day with local folks? What's your message to local leaders about the need to see this as a key priority and not something that is sort of a a nice if we can do it, but a mandate to be done? The, the What we see in our cities today did not occur by chance or, or happenstance and did not occur overnight. And so in the same way in which uh, our cities were designed, where, where uh, the affordable housing existed in the least desirable parts of the city, um, in the same way in which banks drew red lines around those communities on maps and said, investment will not go here, in the same ways that suburbs were built with federal subsidy and federal dollar for white families and explicitly not for black families. All of those things that were clear government policy and that have happened over the past hundreds of years, we need to recognize that if we're going to undo them, it's going to take that same sort of intentional um, attention and action to undo. And so we need to take actions that specifically now focus on investment in cities, investment in the families that have been left out for so long, creating opportunities for folks who've been blocked from gaining the resource and equity that you get through home ownership for for decades and decades, right? That's this is generational. If I was able to buy a house in the 40s, um, it's generational wealth that's been passed down now to to, to somebody that's a, a descendant of them um, today. For other families, that's been blocked. So my message to government is we have to think in that way of how we're going to be intentional about undoing what was done in the past and have policies that are going to, every legislative session, direct resource into our urban centers and not not lay back on a feeling of like, didn't we didn't we do that last session? Did, don't, don't cities already get a lot of money? 
Cities have been blocked from a lot of money. It's going to take years and years and years of intentional investment to get us to the place where we're on par with the kind of investment that you see in other in other places. Um, so we have to keep that at the, at the forefront um, and not see it as a, as a handout, but see it as part of the restorative work that needs to happen. Um, so that's one. Second, I would say we have to recognize policymakers that the life and vitality of our urban centers determines the life and vitality of our state. And that if we are not investing in ensuring that our cities are places of great job growth, great housing opportunity, are safe, are places of great educational opportunity, workforce development, uh, health, if we're not ensuring that that happens in our cities, we're crippling the growth of our entire state. And so I think we have to keep that in front of in front of people's minds as well. And then for those who are coming into cities, the newcomers who are discovering cities for the first time, my message would be respect what's already there. Respect what's already there. There are people who've created community there. Um, there are ways of being that are city ways of being. Respect what's there. Don't come into a new community and then try to turn it into something that you left. Don't try to suburbanize the urban committee because you've, you've now moved into it, right? Respect what's there, learn from it, and let's build on the beauty and vitality of what comes from living in urban centers. Respect what's there needs to be your tagline or t-shirt or bumper sticker, because I think it can apply to so many things. One of the other things that I think is so powerful about the work of Elm City communities and unique in some spaces is that it's not enough to just create options and housing. Your organization is really looking holistically at how do we sustain this for the families here today, but also for generations. So that emphasis on access to quality education and how that creates opportunities for family, access to work, and how that also helps people not only get into a home, but stay in their homes. You have a long, dedicated career of public service. You are now serving as chair of the Connecticut State Board of Education. As you look forward to your own career, your own path in public service, the ways that you're interested in development and redevelopment and revitalization broadly, what would you say is the one key priority that you wish we would focus on more as we move forward? I wish that we would focus as a, as a state on the fact that we are all going to rise or fall together, that we are all intricately linked, uh, and that we cannot approach these big issues of housing and equity and education in a, in a frame of 169 individual cities and towns making decisions, and that we have to think about what's, what's good for, for all so that we end up with a Connecticut um, you know, Connecticut ranks so highly in so many things for certain people. So we are we typically are number one or two in all public education uh, of of the fifty states. But that doesn't mean that every child in Connecticut is getting that quality number one or two ranking type education. And so we have to be about figuring out how we ensure that Connecticut is a place of choice, regardless of what of where you want to be. Um, if you want to have an opportunity to live in something you can afford in cities, you should have that opportunity and a plethora of choices. But if your desire is to live in something affordable in a suburb or in a rural community, there should be a path to that as well and choices um, choices there. Um, if you choose to have your kids in public schools, in the urban centers, you should be able to send your kids there knowing that they're going to get the highest quality education that's going to prepare them for life 
If your housing choice places you in the suburbs or a rural community, you should also know that your kids are going to get that quality public education. So ultimately, let's make sure that Connecticut is a place where your outcomes are not determined by your zip code. Respect what's here and consider what's good for all. Dr. Karen DeVoice Walton is president and CEO of Elm City Communities and the Glendower Group. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Coming up, Harvard Mayor Luke Bronin talks about his approach to housing and development. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking about revitalizing Connecticut cities. Even before the pandemic, more than 28% of people in Hartford were living in poverty. Nationwide, Connecticut often has one of the lowest poverty rates in the country, but its capital of Hartford often has one of the highest. Here to talk about his efforts to spark development in the city is Mayor Luke Bronin. Mayor, good to have you on the show. Thanks. It's good to be with you. You are now entering the last year of your second term as mayor of Hartford. You announced back in November that you would not be seeking a third term. And you also shared in December some of your frustrations about the impact of the pandemic on your plans and efforts around revitalization for the city of Hartford. What's been taken, what efforts have been taken to try to get the most that you can out of these efforts, given the impact of the pandemic on the plans? Sure. Well, first of all, I don't know that I would say I was sharing my frustration. I, this is a job where you know I try not to spend a lot of time thinking about frustrations, just about things we've got to do. Uh, and we, we still have a lot to do. And, and there's a lot I want to try to get done in this next year. You know, what I what I did say was that uh, coming into 2020, uh, we we had a, an enormous amount of momentum and energy. Uh, you could feel it. You could see it. There were uh, just more feet on the street, uh, more activity, more investment coming into the city than we'd seen in a long, long time. And the pandemic, as it did in lots of places, kind of sucked that energy out for a while. You know, I think the pandemic has hit our city uh, in in a number of ways. I mean, first of all, uh, the pandemic has had and continues to have a, a really profound impact on young people. Uh, and so we're working hard with a lot of partners uh, to focus on helping our young people you know, recover, reconnect, heal, uh, catch up in school. Uh, we've built partnerships with a lot of youth serving organizations and, and a unity grant program that's provided resources to do that work. But I think that's one of the most uh, significant impacts of this pandemic that we are going to be wrestling with for a while. You know, that's not the work of a summer or a semester uh, to, to, to help our young people recover. It's going to be years. Um, and then another really significant impact, of course, is is on the changing nature of work and the fact that there are tens of thousands of people who used to be downtown in Hartford every day coming for work and then spending money in our city uh, who aren't there anymore because they're working from home. And uh, one of the things we're doing to address that is to try to double and triple down on residential development, because if you don't have people in office buildings, you got to have uh, that uh, that presence coming from somewhere else. And so, we, you know, we want to build uh, neighborhoods. And, and we've been working really hard to have projects that are uh, that are mixed income, you know, that are a combination of market rate and affordable, uh, but that create uh, that residential density that brings feet back on the street. And at the same time, we've been working to activate 
those vacant retail spaces, some of which became vacant during COVID, some of which have been vacant for a long time. You know, things like our Heartlift partnership, which has uh, brought dozens and dozens of small businesses into empty retail storefronts and uh, and, and act reactivated them. Uh, and then I think it's important to acknowledge, too, that like lots of cities, uh, we've seen a spike in gun violence since the pandemic. And we're working on many, many fronts to to combat that, You know, making sure that our law enforcement have the tools they need. And I'm really grateful and proud that our uh, Harvard Police Department has been taking more illegal guns off the street than ever before, uh, solving both fatal and non-fatal uh, shootings and making arrests in uh, a really uh, high percentage of cases compared to a lot of cities. Uh, and at the same time, you know that this can't be uh, just a law enforcement effort. So we're putting an unprecedented uh, amount of time, energy, and investment in partnerships with community partners that do the work of violence intervention and you know defusing conflict, uh, breaking the cycle of retaliation, building things like a citywide hospital-based violence intervention effort, um, and uh, and a number of other uh, initiatives as, that are that are part of that. So you know, I think th those are just a few of the ways, but I think those are probably three of the biggest ways that the pandemic has has hit us. And I'm focused as intensely as ever on trying to address those and trying to accelerate our recovery uh, from the pandemic as as quickly and as effectively as we can. You've just laid out a number of issues that are interconnected, that are nested. And even if the pandemic exacerbated some of those effects and consequences, many of them predate the pandemic. And so laying out how for a city like Hartford, there is no you know, magic pill that this can be deployed and everything will be fixed. But what I also hear in what you just said, Mayor, was the importance of collaboration, of seeing how do you bring together government service, government initiative with those community-based opportunities. And I want to go back to the heart lift program that you mentioned, because I think it's an important for our listeners to see how this program has been used to really support that spirit of collaboration and revitalization in a different way. Talk to us a little more about how that program, that grant program has been deployed in Hartford to address some of the possibilities and challenges you just laid out. Sure. Um, so you're absolutely right that so many of these issues are interconnected. One of the, as I said, one of the effects of the pandemic was that it was a really hard time for restaurants and coffee shops and bars and retailers. And we knew that reactivating those spaces, both in our downtown and throughout our neighborhoods, was a really important part of the recovery. It was an important part of creating jobs. And it was an important part of addressing the, the psychology of recovery. You know, if you see vacant stores, it sends a message and you feel it. And if you reactivate those with businesses that in many cases are locally owned uh, and, um, you know, are, are showing the beautiful diversity of our city and our entrepreneurs in our city, that sends, it, it doesn't just activate the space, it also sends a powerful message. And the way that we, decided to try to help support that was by building a, a public-private partnership. We used some of our American Rescue Plan resources to offer grants to businesses that were ready to open in vacant retail spaces. And we wanted to make sure that they had skin in the game, right? We, wasn't, we weren't just going to fund this all with public dollars. We said, if you're in downtown, uh, you've got to match our grant 100%. If in your in neighborhoods, you only have to put up 50% of our grant. We wanted to make sure that we were making it a little bit easier to open in, in our neighborhood retail spaces. Um, and 
one of the things that was important about it is that we made it really, really simple and pretty much as of right. You know, if you are a small business and you're going into a space that's been vacant, uh, you partner with your landlord to apply for these grants. And so long as you're making a capital investment to build out those spaces, to activate them and put your business there, we will uh, uh, provide grant funding to help do it. We built the partnership with the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, so the, the Hartford Chamber of Commerce is the implementing partner. They're actually taking the applications, assessing them, making sure that the funding is spent on what it's supposed to be spent on. And uh, I think our current count is that uh, 60 small businesses have uh, a gotten those grants that they are, some of them are already open. Some of them are in the process of building out their spaces. Some of them are finalizing uh, the the grant award process, but, uh, you know, 60 small businesses opening in our downtown, our neighborhoods is a big deal in a city of our size. And, uh, and so I'm really proud of that program. And I'm also really proud of the, the fact that so many of those small businesses are uh, locally owned uh, women entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs of color. Uh, it, it, it's been a really successful program from that perspective. And, uh, you know, we're talking right now, I'm actually talking to you from the U.S. Conference of Mayors. And yesterday, uh, I, I led a panel discussion on economic revitalization in the wake of the pandemic. And one of the most uh, sort of uh, exciting things that I heard in a while is, uh, the economic development officials from the city of Mount Vernon, New York, described a program they said, and, and they said, we modeled this program on Hartford's Heartlift program. And uh, and it was great to hear because, you know, it, it is something that uh, that I'm proud of that that, uh, as you said, is the result of partnership and uh, and is trying to use public dollars to help uh, leverage private investment. The last thing I'll say, because I, I think it's really important to be honest about this. As much as that program has been successful, it's a race against time. You know, a lot of those small businesses, they've opened up. But if they're going to be successful over the long run, we need to be successful in bringing people into the city. We need to be successful in activating commercial corridors uh, in our neighborhood so that uh, folks think of our commercial corridors as places they want to go. And, you know, whether it's go to a retail store or go get some food. And we have to make sure that our residential development continues in the downtown so you've got enough people to support those small businesses. Let's talk about another area that often feels like a race against time, getting access to a quality, affordable housing within your cities. And while that is a nationwide challenge and crisis, really, Hartford is in a unique position because of the high level of tax-exempt properties that you have, being the seat of state government, private colleges, hospitals, all of that nature then has an impact on property values, but also contributions to taxes. What's happening in Hartford in order to address this affordable housing crisis, given those other dynamics that you've mentioned of the need to bring people into the city while also addressing those who are already there? We are doing a lot to try to build more residential development and to try to make sure that the residential development we do has affordability built into it. You know, I, I'm a strong believer of, of the, the idea that the best way to build strong, healthy neighborhoods, strong, healthy communities and cities is to build income diversity in our neighborhoods. I think that one of the mistakes of past generations and maybe even very recent past is that we tend to concentrate all of our affordable development in one place. You know, you sort of concentrate poverty. And 
And I don't think that's the way that you create opportunity. I think uh, a, a development that is providing opportunity across the income spectrum is a better, healthier, more sustainable way to build strong, healthy neighborhoods. And so that's why we've really tried to pursue projects that are a mix of market rate housing, um, you know, workforce housing, and then more deeply subsidized affordable housing. And um, and I think that I, I'd like to see more Connecticut towns do that uh, because I think that's the way we build a healthier state. So we've built many, many units uh, and we have some big, I also say we also have some big uh, projects that are uh, lar- almost entirely affordable. If you look at, for example, the redevelopment of Westbrook Village or the redevelopment of Bowles Park, um, an initiative we have underway to try to redevelop some other big uh, projects like Mary Shepherd Place into affordable home ownership opportunities. So we're working really hard with a with a sense of urgency and mission to build new residential opportunities across the income spectrum and make sure that affordability is built into that. And and the other piece you mentioned, which is uh, quality affordable housing, is also really critical because we have, you know, 40% of the residential property in Hartford is deed restricted as, uh, you know, income restricted or affordable housing. Uh, there's no other city that comes anywhere even close to that. Uh, but there is a quality problem. Much of that housing is old. Uh, too much of it is owned by property owners or landlords who are you know, extracting uh, rent payments and not investing enough into the properties. And, and I will say, I think that's a place where we historically have not done well enough and where we're trying really hard to do better through a combination of uh, enforcement efforts, uh, the creation of our, our residential uh, licensing program so we can get ahead of uh, some of those enforcement efforts, not just respond on the back end. Uh, we're building that up uh, and uh, and committed to doing better. But I, I will honestly say, I don't think we've done anywhere near well enough. And that has to be an important part of addressing the, the quality affordable housing component is looking at the existing u- housing you've got and making sure that it is worthy of the families and residents who are living there. As we said at the top of our conversation, this is your last year as mayor of Hartford. And it's early in that year. But I want to, as we come to the close of our time together, ask you, as you look back on your term governing this city, what would you say is what you view as your biggest accomplishment or the thing that gives you the greatest hope for the future of Hartford? Uh, I think those are two two different answers. Uh, you know, um, if you ask what the greatest accomplishment was, it's not the thing that I set out to to make my priority. But I think, and and like it's it's always hard to talk about the the bad things you prevented from ha- happening, right? Uh, because it's it's so hard to to imagine the world, the, the alternative world, you know, if you hadn't done those things. But I, I think that the the thing that my team and I. Uh, are probably most proud of is that uh, we inherited a city that was insolvent. It was bankrupt financially, if not legally bankrupt. And we set out to tackle that in a in a serious long-term way. You know, we said we are not going to just kick the can. We're not going to just buy some time. You know, we're not going to restructure debt payments and kick them out a few years so that we get by, but then somebody else has to deal with the problem. We said we're going to try to build a stronger foundation for the long term. And we did that in part by making some really difficult cuts and really difficult decisions. But we also uh, asked our big companies to step up and contribute 
meaningfully financially. Uh, we asked our unions to step up in big ways, and they did. Uh, and then, of course, we built a partnership with the state, um, where where the state uh, has uh, has been an enormous uh, part partner in that effort. Uh, I think that it's still. I, I'm not sure that there's still a full appreciation for just how big and dangerous that fiscal crisis was and how catastrophic it would have been if we hadn't tackled it honestly, aggressively, with an eye to the long term, not just getting by for a couple of years. So I think that's probably the thing that you know I'm most proud of. Yes, what the thing that gives me the most hope um you know, it's it's the work that we're doing with our young people. Uh, I think the the other thing I guess I would say that I'm that I'm most proud of, but also gives me most hope is uh, uh, you know initiatives like our youth service corps. When I, when I started, when I was running for mayor, I, I talked with so many people who work with young people, uh, and often we're working with a lot of young people who had fallen off track. You know, who maybe had had dropped out of school uh, or had sort of skated by, finished school, but didn't have a plan, didn't have a path to a job. Um, young people who may have had some involvement in the criminal justice system and didn't see a path back to building the kind of life that they wanted. And the thing that we built to try to address some of that was our youth service corps. And we raised the money privately because we didn't have any money at the time. Um, and because of that work, uh, about 2,000 young people in Hartford have had the chance to, in most cases, get their first job, earn their first paycheck, feel the pride that comes with earning that paycheck, but also build a resume that they can use to help them get uh, to the next step. And most importantly, uh, build partner, build uh, relationships with mentors and coaches and a whole support structure that helps our young people see what they're capable of and then see the specific steps they can take to get onto that path. And, um, and just this past week, uh, we received a $2 million grant from the feds to help expand that youth service corps. And, uh, you know, my hope is that that youth service corps keeps growing because there are many, many more young people who I think would, would benefit from it. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of it. And every time I talk with the young people who are in it, I'm enormously hopeful because we've got so many talented young people who want to be part of building their community. And I think in too many cases don't really know how to do it. Luke Bronin is mayor of Hartford, Connecticut. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Disrupted is produced by Wayne Edwards, Kevin Shang Barnum, Emily Cherish, and Katie Tularski. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. I'm Kalila Brown Dean. Thanks for listening.